Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel. I'm here with Dr. Mark Gerges, Deputy Director of the Department of Military History. Welcome. No, thank you. So uh, let's start by telling us a little bit about your background. Let's start with your military background. Okay, I went to uh, Norwich University and graduated uh, from there in 1984. Went to Armour. Uh, was an Armour officer for 20 years. Uh, served in 3rd Armored Division, 1st Cavalry Division, 1st uh, Armored Division during Desert Storm. Um, 3rd Infantry Division, 18th Airborne Corps, um, so um, spent most of my time, uh, five and a half years in Europe and then uh, the rest of the time in the United States. Uh, the Army sent me to graduate school uh, at Florida State University. Um, I went there and then I went up to uh, West Point and I was on the faculty there for three years. Okay, and uh, tell us a little bit about your academic background. Um, I got my master's from Florida State University where I worked under uh, Professor Don Horward. Um, and then I uh, finished my PhD um, there in 2005. Um, and uh, my main focus area is the Peninsula War, uh, particularly uh, Duke Wellington uh, and the British Cavalry uh, under him. Um, also have other areas of interest, uh, really mechanized warfare and then World War II in the modern era. Okay, and, and we'll swing back to all of these as, as we talk about kind of how you got into them. Um, but before we do that, you, you kind of wear two hats with us. On, on one hand, you're the deputy director of, of the department, and on the other hand, you're, you're also a member of our teaching faculty. Um, so let's start with the deputy side of it. What do you do as deputy? Um, my official title, because um, I'm the only, uh, there's only two Title Fives, uh, regular GS uh, in the department, myself and the editor. Uh, but my official title is Program Administrator, so I am responsible for all the, just the systems, uh, mostly the human resource type stuff, making sure people get paid, uh, promotions, uh, hirings, uh, disciplinary, any of those type of things, mandatory training. And so um, my job really on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure uh, establishing systems so that people get reappointed on time. Uh, get the promotions, the recognition that they need, um, and that all the various other functions other than, that, uh, other than the classroom go on so that people can focus on being successful in the classroom. So this, I think, is a departure for people who are used to traditional academic departments, where our director is, is the equivalent of a department chair. But most traditional academic departments don't have a deputy. Mm -hmm. so, so why is that a, a, a feature of the departments here as opposed to a kind of a more traditional state school? And I think the other thing I need to say, too, is the director is different in that it's a permanent position. Um, it's a hiring. Um, they are um, normally... Uh, for most of our department heads, they're active duty military colonels. Uh, two of the department heads are retired uh, colonels, but um, not that being a colonel is the requirement, but it's just that level of, uh, of responsibility experience uh, that they have. Um, and part of it is because we are the federal government that we have many more um, rules, regulations, training um, type of things. In an active army force, it would be an executive officer. Um, my job is to make sure that whatever the boss's big ideas are, are translated into concrete 
procedures and systems and be able to execute those and and collect data. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the other big aspects of my job is to have information at my fingertips and when the boss needs to make a decision, I can tell, uh, give him good information so he can make a decision and try to anticipate types of, uh, of needs and make sure, uh, because we have the federal government, there's all sorts of limitations on what we can and we can't do because of ethics rules and hiring and all those things and mm-hmm. making sure we don't hit any of those third rails right. um, in our procedures. Okay, and um, I also, in addition to this administrative role, you do still teach. So tell us about what you teach beside the core and AOC courses. Yeah, I've. Uh, this is my 20th year in the department, 21st year here at Fort Leavenworth, and uh, I've taught a variety of electives, um, and uh, I've been the block author, uh, which is the, 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 the overall author for the, the Common Core, what we call H100 twice. I've been also for H400, and I was also for what we used to have a block that was called the, uh, um, the I can't even think of the name now. It was the uh, case studies, where we had five case studies that uh, went there. So um, I've done all those type of pieces uh, over that years, and I've taught uh, a wide variety of electives. Uh, currently, I'm teaching um, the, uh, the Great Campaigns, uh, Alpha 698, which is required for SAMS. Uh, students to take the School of Advanced Military Studies, the second year program. Um, so they are required to take two electives here um, with us during their, their first year. Uh, one of them is Great Campaigns, and then I offer a, uh, uh, another elective, uh, Alpha 641, the Peninsula War. Uh, but overall, in my time here, I've taught, um, I've taught the American Civil War for U.S. officers, American Civil War for international officers, which includes the staff ride. Which is uh, a special program we run. Yes, yes. Uh, that includes the staff ride to Gettysburg yes. for all the international officers. Uh, I've taught uh, the Napoleonic generalship. I've taught uh, insurgencies during the Napoleonic era. I've taught uh, Alpha 699, the, uh, the military theorists. I've taught 698. Uh, I've taught a Battle of the Bulge uh, elective, which also included a uh, staff ride one year um, uh, when we, we ended up getting a, g- a gift of money for, uh, through the CGSE Foundation. Um, so uh, pretty much, you know, you've been around enough time, to, you, you do a wide variety of things that maybe are not necessarily in your you know narrow wheelhouse, but are, are things that you're interested in. and. Um, that's one of the big values of the elective program. It allows you to kind of dive into an area that you're um, that you have some passion about, and and uh, we can get a mm-hmm. chance to dive into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how do you balance both of those hats? How do you balance the administrative duties of herding all the cats in the department with teaching and maintaining currency in your fields? Yeah, it's it's a challenge because on top of that, um, each of the academic departments are also a division. So there are. Uh, there's five divisions, divisions A through E. We are Division E, which has oversight of three teaching teams. So um, I try to go watch other people teach uh, for our instructors. I also go watch the instructors from other departments in the three teaching teams that we uh, oversee. And part of that allows me to maintain some of those best practices. As it, It's fascinating to watch. Um, we have a set you have to cover and meet these learning objectives in a, in a two-hour block. How you get there is wide open, and, and it's fascinating to go and, and spend time in a week watching two or three different people who approach the topic material and the subject entirely different uh, with different techniques, and it allows me to kind of 
bring those things in. Um, the other aspect is um, you just got to kind of plan your time. I mean, it's it's there is no good way. Um, uh, you know, you try to attend conferences, uh, present at conferences if at all possible. Uh, read uh, Society of Military History, JMH. Uh, you know, keep active in those type of pieces. Um, but at the same time, I have to sit and put my head and read Army regulations trying to figure out how to do something that we've right. never done before. So um, it is just a balancing of, of your time and effort uh, mm -hmm. to kind of keep that together. Oh, that certainly makes sense. Uh, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier because I think it's important. Uh, you, you mentioned that you studied at Florida State under now the departed Don Horward. Mm -hmm. So explain what the program that Dr. Horward ran was and why it's so important. Yeah, Don Horward, when he came into Florida State University as a young professor, um, it was just one of those those times where everything aligned purpose, purposely, perfectly, excuse me. Um, the, the library was getting money and he was able to go. He was, had, had studied Messina's in, uh, invasion of Portugal in 1810 and he was able to go to Europe and buy collections uh, books, um, buy individual books from used bookstores. And, um, this is the late 60s? Or late the 60s, early 70s. So um, Florida State started to become this, this hub of uh, rare and unique uh, Napoleonic books in the United States. He also um, had money that when they sent people overseas to archives, uh, they were able to microfiche um, what their research was, and then bring, the, the requirement was they had to bring a copy of the microfiche back to the library. So um, Florida State has one of the largest, if not the largest, collection of Napoleonic and French Revolutionary uh, documents and books uh, in there. And then um, Horward started the Institute of Napoleon and the French Revolution. And so over his tenure there of, uh, I think it was 44 years altogether, uh, brought in students who wanted to study primarily diplomatic and military um, aspects of the French Revolution and Napoleon, but um, he allowed them to, to be very uh, diverse in their uh, pieces. He was also one of the founding members of the Consortium of Revolutionary Europe, which has now morphed into the Consortium of the Revolutionary Era. Um, Sometime in the 1980s, he um, was invited up to West Point, where he was one of the, uh, the visiting professors for a year. Uh, the relationship there ended up um, uh, becoming where one or two Army officers would go to Florida State, study at the Institute of Napoleon of the French Revolution, and then go to West Point um, to be on the faculty there. And so um, myself and another uh, a good friend of mine, Brian DeToy, with the third and fourth officers who had gone down to Florida State. We were there at the same time. Um, but I think altogether he said 17 officers who had gone to uh, Florida State for two years, did some sort of aspect on the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Eras, then went up to West Point um, and taught. And as far as I know, I think 16 of the 17 finished their PhDs at some point of their Army career. Um, and so it was a, it's a long-term lasting influence that he had um, just on the officer professional development of starting with young cadets and then many of them have gone into what we call PME, professional military education, um, mm -hmm. either uh, not just the military officers but just civilians also, but there have been members of the Institute of Napoleon the French Revolution who have been on the staff at the Naval War College, at Monterey's uh, version of the Naval War College. Uh, 
Army War College here, obviously. Air um, University. Air University uh, has yeah. a huge uh, uh, impact. So um, he's had a huge influence on the professional military education of, of officers uh, in the last 25, 30 years. So you're uh, presumably Captain Gerges who gets to Tallahassee? That's correct, yeah. How did you end up studying British cavalry in the peninsula? <laughs> oh, um, that's a funny story because I go in the first time. Um, my mother had been a registered nurse, but I was the first one to go to conventional uh, university in my family. So I really didn't know anything about going to graduate school. Uh, and... Uh, I get down there, I meet Professor Horward. His office is this tiny office with just books piled everywhere. And I'm not even sure how he had a chair in there. And he asked me my background. I'd just come out of uh, Desert Storm where I commanded a tank company, uh, armor officer. Um, so I said, you know, oh, and, and he asked me, do you speak a foreign language? No. Uh, I took French in, in college. Okay, so you know, so you're going to do something on the, the British in the peninsula. I said, well, I'm armored. Let me do something on Calvary. And his comment was, no, they're no damn good. Find something else. <laughs> um, and so for six months at Florida State, I worked on Wellington and his relationship with the Spanish generals, uh, looking at the letters um, and their, their, their relationship. And it was finally one of our seminars. He used to have seminars um, many times at the, once a week at Golden Corral, have all his, uh, his graduate students there. And... Uh, we're talking uh, in between it, and I just happened to ask, why were the British cavalry no damn good? And his, he's like, that's a great question. You should work on that. <laughs> and so after six months, I then started working on Wellington's cavalry, looking at it um, really from an aspect of the doctrine. Um, and I, I would use air quotes except for we're on a podcast. Um, because doctrine at that period is really uh, drill and ceremonies and procedures. Right. Regulations. Yeah, regulations. But it is, there is an emerging piece of why and how you do things and what you're trying to do about it. And uh, the British Army in a lot of ways is an ancien regime army. It is not uh, a modernized army in the Peninsula War. It's still looking back to the pre-revolutionary pre-professional in many senses of the word. Still selling units until the 1850s. Yeah, and so um, at that time I started to look at um, the doctrine going in, the officer education, the organization, and battlefield effectiveness. And so really looking at what we today in the Army would look at dot mil pf the doctrine organization training leadership um, and all those aspects that are taught here at the commander general staff college looking at those aspects to try to say and look at how they improved and what were their problems what were their shortfalls and kind of evaluate the the effectiveness of the british cavalry over the six-year campaign so what's the answer why were they not good now they <laughs> it depends on what you define and i think part of the problem is um Everyone wants to talk about the charge. Everyone wants to talk about, and the British, uh, part of the reason they do terribly on the charge is that their officers are embedded into their line. Um, in the 1790s, the British Army has the problem coming off the American Revolution where they are still, um, they're still kind of open campaigning, uh, much li more light campaigning, yeah. and they start to adopt more the Prussian model. Um, and for the British cavalry, they did, it, it's a very, very um, lockstep type of maneuvers that they're going to do. But one of the things they're so fixated on is the line 
and being able to move from one formation to another, that they put the junior officers in the line with the soldiers and the NCOs to be able to control them. Which is fine for the parade. Right, but you can't maneuver. You can't. Um, you see again and again during a charge that the British officer sees his commanding general out or his commanding officer in front pull up and give the order to stop, and he pulls up, and the soldiers just keep going forward because they don't see it, they don't notice it. Um, contrast that with the uh, French cavalry, where if you look at their manuals at the time, their officers were all a, a rank in front so the soldiers can see them and follow their example. Um, but the bigger piece I kind of looked at, if you look at the charge, you look at that day of battle type of thing, there's only about 40 of them in the six years, so what, 1,200 days of the Peninsula War, uh, 40 of those days are the charge, and they do some terrible uh, things. But what do they do for the other 1,100 and, uh, and, and 60 days? And they're on outpost duties, and they're protecting the Army, and they're providing security, and they do very, very well. There's only really one example of them being surprised um, on an outpost, and it's a relatively new um, uh, unit at Germina Four Down Beer Badholz that um, is surprised while on picket duty. Um, for the vast majority, the Wellington's Army is never surprised, um, has decent intelligence uh, of the French movements. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you look at it from a more, I guess, holistic type of look of what they're trying to do, um, they do pretty well. There's problems on the officers. Um, again, I had mentioned about the pre-professional type of thing where family relationships, um, Royal relationships, those yep. type of things make uh, are more important than professional competence. Yep. Um, Still a very aristocratic army. Yeah, and, and so those those pieces play into it to take away uh, their accomplishments. But um, it's interesting to watch things like the King's German Legion cavalry who comes, and uh, in many ways uh, these Hanoverian troops that have fled Napoleon have you know gone to uh, to England and then become the the King's German Legion. Um, their leavening type of uh, a force for the the British cavalry. They write doctrinal manuals that um, you know on how to do outpost duties that the British Army just didn't have, because that really wasn't the focus. Um, right. And that so, makes sense. yeah. So uh, the question I imagine Captain Gergus got at least once, but it's relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, this stuff all happened 200 years ago, so you, you kind of have a foot in more contemporary history, the Desert Storm, and this Napoleonic stuff. So how do you answer the, the challenge that the Napoleonic stuff is obsolete and not really worth studying? Well, it goes back to the, what I was talking about before with the um, examining organizational uh, effectiveness. The tools to look at all the different pieces that makes an effective army or effective battalions, whether it's the doctrine officer education, um, organization, all these little changes. Looking at, it, a, if you will, a case study of six, six years of warfare in the Peninsula War is all stuff that can be taken into the current day, uh, looking at how those changes. You know, it's not, it's not one thing by itself. It's not a new tool uh, that's going to make it. It's how you use that tool, how you put it into an organization, how's the officer education. Um, all those pieces um, go in there. So, um, you know, for example, I teach the, the, the elective on the Peninsula War. Um, and we look at, uh, when you put it into modern terms, it's multi-domain operations because the British have the advantage with um, uh, naval uh, right. domain, so they're going to use that very, very effectively. 
um, looking at the effectiveness, looking at the political objectives, how are you translating political objectives from London into operational uh, objectives on the battlefields. Um, when you look at things like the Victoria Campaign of 1813, where Wellington um, understands the threat of his supply line, and the French understand that, but they don't know that Wellington's going to use his navy and basically change his supply line to the north coast of Spain. So when he is advancing, and they think they're trying to cut his line, he's actually advancing towards his supply bases. Um, all those pieces of operational design and how you translate that into some sort of tactical actions and stuff, I think is very, very relevant for students to study um, today. Um, and it's it, it, part of the value of the history and part of the value of using that as some kind of um, uh, case study is not to take particular lessons from it. It's, um, it's the training of the mind. Um, you have to have the granular detail to be able to talk through how it was done then and then give the students the opportunity to once they 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 have all this granular detail and they put themselves in the example of being able to come up with here's here's how a commander here's the options they had here's the options they didn't have here's why they made this decision would you make that type of decision so that's where that's how I'd make that argument that there is a absolute relevance uh, mm -hmm. for today that isn't going to go into the whole piece about um, you know, that it changes the world. The world we live in today has such a big piece of uh, what the French Revolution does yes. uh, throughout Europe. So we'll, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> yeah, another podcast, yeah. Dr. Gers, thank you. All right, thank you very much. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.